Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm your Dana Osband, here with my friend Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masach Sukkah, Daf Chav Talon, page 24. Yesterday, I mentioned that we're going to be introduced to a concept that keeps coming up over and over again. I actually think we've seen it in almost every Masach Ann. Maybe I'm wrong about that, uh, but I'm pretty confident I am actually right about that, which is the concept of Yesh Breira or Ein Breira. In other words, can something... Do we allow for something to take hold retroactively? Um, and where this comes up here in this tab, and it's a very lengthy discussion, I more just wanted to make, mention that it's here. I'm not really going to read it inside because we have a hundred other things that we want to, not literally a hundred, but other things that we want to focus on. Um, but it comes up with this discussion about using an animal as a wall for sukkah and whether or not there's a concern about whether or not this animal could die right, that Rabbi Mayer is concerned about, whereas Rabbi Huda is not really concerned about that. And then again, they get into one of these familiar just uh, parallel cases, which is about using wine that's in this type of like wine type of skin flask and me and you didn't take truma from it yet. And maybe, you know, you drink, you know, you're going to, you know, retroactively take truma from it, right? But then maybe it's going to burst and then you're not actually going to be able to take uh, truma from it. And so the Gemara does a very big deep deep dive again about what Rabbi Mayer's opinion is and exactly what Rabbi Yehuda's opinion is. But I just wanted to point out, this seems to be one of these sort of overriding sort of meta-halachic principles of yesh brera or ain brera, right? Do we hold by brera or do we not hold by brera that comes up over and over again in each and every masachat? Um, I think it's useful, I think, to see how, well, like this, right? We talk about the Talmud as being a compendium and that it's not really a book in the way that we think of now books that are written with beginnings and middles and ends. And I think that this Yesh Beira, Imbera, Halachic point, the fact that it shows up like the thread running throughout, I think makes this point perhaps sharper than some other things that we might you know, we might say, oh, well, but this topic is in this Masachet and that topic is in that Masachet. And yet, the Masechot kind of really do overlap with each other. And and as I say, this halachic issue, I think, highlights that in a in a way that makes it visceral, right? Like, it's very clear to everybody who's been learning Dafyomi, I think, that this is not a beginning, middle, end kind of book, right? And that it overlaps with itself and that the that these themes and threads that run throughout one Masechot could just as easily appear in a different Masechot in a completely different context and yet, you know, that's that's part of what does hold it all together. Totally agree. And I think Brera is one of those. Um, okay, now uh, I think you're going to get to this great discussion that we have about Kitten on this staff. So this is one of those, here, your daddy could again talk about it as a boundary pushing issue, right? Because the question here is, the government discusses different kinds of mechitzot, um, right? Different kinds of partitions and what you can do with them, what you can't do with them. And then the Gemara goes on to discuss um, the writing of a divorce. Now, part of the, we're, we're so not yet into Seder Nashim and the Masechot that deal with divorce, but the issue really is that the Torah says that a man writes a woman, a husband writes his wife, a bill of divorcement, Sefer Kritut, a, a writ that divorces her, right? And And this is a key, this is, fundamental to the nature of Jewish divorce is that the man does the writing and he get, then gives it to her. And this is what is necessary. So here we're going to talk about 
where you can write your bill of divorce. You can't write a bill of divorcement on one of these partitions. Okay. Um, why you would think to do so, again, not so clear, right? My time, what is his rationale? Sefer. It says in a Abreita, it quotes the Pasuk, the verse, where it says Sefer, meaning this Sefer here, it, you know, it doesn't really mean book. It means this scroll, let's say, of the that's going to be the bill of divorcement. How do we know that he could write it on anything other than, let's say, parchment or vellum or something that's going to be an actual scroll? How could he write it on anything at all to say that you have to have a discussion that says you can't write it on one of these partitions? And the answer is because as much as it says that he gives her this sefer, it also says v'chatavla. He writes it to her, writes it for her. And the implication then is, or the derivation of the halachayir, so therefore he could write it fundamentally on anything, anything, unless there's an exclusion, which we have on this stuff, right? So the, the idea is that anything that it's fit to be written on, well, but it could be really anything, um, any any surface, I guess, right? It has to be still something that will show the writing. So then the Gemara here, and it gets a little bit involved in this discussion of Gittin, um, why does the verse have to say safer to begin with? If we already are, if we're going to learn from it or from the other verse, the other words in the verse, that that it could be anywhere, right? Why do you have to ever say safer? The same way, rather intuitively, that a scroll is not a living thing. It does not eat, it does not breathe, it does not live. So too, anything that you're going to put your gittin on, it has to be something that is not alive. It's not alive, it's, it does not eat, it's not food, fine. Okay, so again, I might not have thought this to begin with. I might not have ever been at risk of, of thinking that a get, a get could be written on a living animal, let's say, for example. But here, we're going. the, the idea here is that the Gemara concludes from the word sefer, the same way that the sefer is inanimate, so too, whatever you write your get on must be inanimate. Rabbanan, and then the question is, well, what are the what about the chachamim who say that the get could be written, and get this, the get the getting could be written even on a living creature or on food, right? How are they going to handle the word sefer? Rabbanan, ikatav besefer, kidaka amart, hashta diktiv sefer, lisfirat, so then the, the Chachamim, meaning what are they going to do with this term Basefer? Basically, the idea is to say that they have that he asked to write her Sefer, I'm sorry, Sfirat Dvarim, an account of the things, meaning the fact that they're getting divorced. So then Sefer no longer means Sefer, a scroll, that it has to be written on a scroll. That's not the case. <clears throat> and it's not that we're going to infer from it that it has to be an inanimate object, but rather the phenomenon of getting being an account that this that the we're going to take from the word safer and come to sfirat dvarim, an account of what has happened. The Gemara goes on. Rabbanan, hi vechatav. So then, what about the chachamim? What are they going to do with vechatav? My darshibe. What? Why do they need vechatav? Rabbi Yosei that it could be on any and anything that's not living. No, meaning before the caveat about living, but basically you could write your get on any living thing. It doesn't have to be a scroll. 
This is where the Gemara is going to say they needed b'ktiva midgareshet ve'ena midgareshet b'kesef. So this is an interesting. I would say like we we're getting deeper and deeper into the laws of gerushin because now we have to talk about a little bit about the laws of getting married to begin with, which is that you can get married b'kesef. What does it mean b'kesef? By the means of money. That um, nowadays we do this. Um, when let's say a ring, the, the ring that the groom gives the bride under the chuppah, that is the kesef, the money by which she is technically then betrothed, betrothed whatever. Um, it's it's kiddushin, right? It's this is the first stage of marriage and halachic marriage. I feel like I don't want to set, spend too much time getting far afield into that, but just understand that the that the aspect of money, the reason to talk about money here is because it really does play a role in marriage, even though. What it's saying here is you can't get divorced by means of money. It does not have a role of, in divorce. You really need an actual written account. Okay. So what this says is the same, you might have thought that the same way that she comes into the marriage by means of monetary exchange, you might think that she could also exit the marriage by means of monetary exchange. And therefore, to the contrary, he has to write her this, this bill of divorcement. What about Rabbi Yosei Glili? Because if we've gone through, we started with the opinion of Rabbi Yosei Glili, then we did Rabbanan's opinion, now we're back to Rabbi Yosei Glili. How does he understand that she, that, he, that she can't be divorced by money? How does he get to that detail because he's using the words v'sefer, and he's using the words v'chatavla for other things, how is he ever going to come to the same halachic conclusion upon which they agree that divorce cannot take place with money? So he says, or the inference is, ma sefer kritut nafkale, sefer korta, ve'en davar acher korta. It says, a scroll of divorcement. So he learns from it a scroll, korta, that she can only... the Right here, it's the the division between them. Right, the fact of divorce takes place only with that which is written, this written document, and nothing else is going to be effective to bring about a divorce. Not money or anything else. So, so already this is, you know, I would say that these are halachot that they're talking about having already known what the halacha has to be. Right, yeah. <laughs> they're not deriving them now. Part of that's because we're in Masechet Sukkot. We're not learning the Mishnayot and the Gemara's in Gittin to begin with. So these are references, right? As we said, as we said before, the Gemara really is a, a whole that repeats on itself or folds in on itself. Um, but this is part of, I think, why it feels here that they're already, we're talking about what are the rationales for things that everybody already knows that everybody agrees on or where they disagree. And then lastly, the Idach, the other the other here means Rabbanan, meaning as compared to Rabbi Yosei Glili, the, they say that you have this Pasuk, the verse teaches that when they have this bill of divorcement, it will truly sever the connection between them. It will, it will, it will cut, cut off one from the other. There's a whole lot of cases in Masachet Kitten that talks about conditional divorce and what kinds of conditions, and some of them are really far afield that you could make as a condition. Here's an example of one. Here is your divorce, says the potential divorcing husband, right? But Alma, not only on the condition 
that you don't drink wine, which seems to be forever, right? Uh, and uh, and almanat with the intent that you never go, you don't go to the home of your father ever, right? Okay, so this is no longer a reasonable bill of divorcement, and it means it does not function as something that severs the connect connection between this couple because he, the divorcing husband, still has this conditional hold over her, and that is not considered a divorce, according to the Gemara here. Right? However, if he had had a condition of don't do thus and such for a period of 30 days, that would be considered acceptable because at the end of that 30 days, you would have a full severance between them. I think this understanding about divorce, which we will obviously much more deep dive into when we get to Masach the Kitten, but I think we got a little bit of a taste ahead of time. But this idea of it being, you know, the critute, like it has to be a complete and total separation. There cannot be any link anymore between that man and that woman is a very interesting concept, one that's really reflected in the description of divorce in the Torah itself. Um, I want to get to the next Mishnah. But, you know, I appreciate you sharing that passage. Always interesting to see where we get parallel halachot. Like, how did we get on Gittin in Masachat Sukkah? <laughs> we understand how we did. Uh, but again, I, I would look at this as a coming attraction, though we're not getting to Masachat Gittin uh, for many years. Uh, I just want to end with the Mishnah that's, that ends uh, on this stop um, and uh, does something very interesting afterwards. The Mishnah reads as, as, as follows here. Um, uh, so if somebody establishes a sukkah between trees, right? Like I guess you're in a forest. Now we don't even talk about the coverage of the branches of the tree of the schach, which I think is fascinating here, right? But it's more that the trees serve as the wall, the sukkah is fit. And I would have thought that the discussion would have been about the schach, right? Like everybody knows, um, I have a friend who's a real estate agent um, and she knows when she's taking me around to look at houses, she'll literally be like, and here's where you could put the sukkah, <laughs> you know, because she knows the whole thing about the trees and, you know, always trying to find a place that doesn't have tree covered. So that's one comment I want to make. It's interesting. That's not where the Gemara goes in at all. Instead, the Gemara goes in the following direction. Any partition that can't stand in a typical wind Right. In other words, a wall that's going to sort of be blown back and forth is not considered to be a mechitza. And then the Gemara goes on to say, "Tanan haosa sukato bena ilanot veilanot tefanot lakshera." So the Gemara goes back by quoting our Mishnah and says, "Beha kaazel vaate." Don't trees sway back and forth? Now I found this fascinating because I don't know. Like, yeah, the base of the tree doesn't really go back and forth. I mean, I actually look at that as something that pretty much stays sweaty, so, you know, steady there. Whereas, like, you know, when you look at something like the, you know, the canvas walls that we have, we tie them down, but they do sort of go back and forth. So what is it that we're talking about? We're talking about older trees, right? So older trees that are hard and they're not going to sway. Right. But what about the foliage? Right. So it's saying, no, this is where you use a wall, but you use the wall by tying hard palm leaves and laurel leaves. So in other words, there's no swaying of the uh, of the foliage. So if it's just foliage that's tied down. 
why do you need to state this halacha, right? It's not something that moves. So what's the chiddush here? Mahu detema, you might have thought, nigzar dilma ate lash leish tamushe ilan. You might have thought that maybe we would make a decree that you couldn't use a tree because you might come to use it on Shabbat. Kamash Malan, the Mishnah teaches us other, otherwise. And then the Gemara goes on to basically a series of bright totes, right? That one is about a, a, a reed uh, that you're using, like Michitzara Kanim. One is about Ilana Maseach Al Haaretz, right? A tree whose foliage is broad and sort of covers the ground. And does it make a space that you're allowed to carry under? Um, and the answer to all of these are, because in all these cases, these are things that move, is that no, it must always be what it's always talking about a case where the person tied down the mechitzah with hard palm leaves and laurel leaves. And this discussion goes on until the next staff. Um, but I thought it was very interesting that they're bringing all of these bright to all of these examples, all these toshmas, all of these involve, uh, you know, examples where there is something that could move. And the Gemara's answer is like, no, it's not actually moving because of obviously it has to be where he tied it down with palm with hard palm leaves and laurel leaves. But there's like nothing in the actual language of these tonic statements that actually says this. And so I wonder if partly what's going on here is, is that they have this series of tonic statements that's per, that's permitting the use of certain things uh, for milchitzot or for walls that they know in practice is never actually used. And so the only way that they can sort of justify how these Tanaitic statements came to be is that there must be a qualifier to it that isn't explicitly said, but that everybody knew existed. And so this methodology on the page of just like assuming that there is a qualification here or sort of another set of circumstances that has to exist, even though it's not explicit in any of these Tanaitic statements, is very interesting to me. Because I think one could almost argue the opposite. We have a series of tentative statements that seems to be clear you can use something that moves to be a wall or to be a mechitza. And the Gemara just like totally turns it around and says, nope, it obviously has to be that it was really tied down and made stiff. You think there's a lot of um, breaking down of preconceptions or whatever in this in this masachet. Because I maybe this because, you know, we feel like we know sukkah because we live it every year and, and certainly in different circumstances, you know, certainly over a, over my whole life, I've seen different kinds of sukkot in different places. Your Dana, I was totally surprised when I went through the daf and saw that the question was not going to be about about the coverage, right? The leaves coverage. And then here also, right, the, the whole thing here makes me say, oh, we have to take a step back and and like learn it as if we didn't know anything about sukkah. And then perhaps some of these things will be less, I don't know, not surprising, but less, um, you know, puzzling when we come upon them because, because it part of the puzzlement is that it seems so different from what we thought it was going to be. I think that's a great point to make that we come with our own preconceived notions based on how we practice sukkah today. When we learned Yuma and Psachim, it was so foreign, even a Reuven. I can't say that I had so many preconceived notions, but Sukkah, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on of like what's kosher, not kosher. Um, you know, what are things that are important to have or not important to have? Um, and like you said, it was interesting to see this Mishnah went in a totally different direction than I would have expected it. 
Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rebani Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.